Welcome to this special edition of Pusher Mania's podcast, Real Talk. This was not intended to be a podcast, what I got here for you today. But I was thinking to myself, a couple years back, I went out to the Scion Musicless Conference in Los Angeles. And if anyone from Scion or maybe Beyond Marketing is listening to this, I think you should do another one, please. They were really fun. Uh, both the times I went out to the Scion Musicless Conferences, I had an incredible time. I missed one for whatever reason. But, uh, yo, seriously, have another one, please. I'm coming. I'm ready. Coming out there. Anything you need. Anyways, I had the good fortune of being able to sit down with two short. It was like an exclusive dinner the first night of the conference. All the like delegates or whatever you would call them, like the people who were on the panels and everything. It was just a music industry who's who up in there. And they had a sit-down interview with Angelo Moore from Fishbone and with uh, Niles Rogers. Uh, amazing. And right in between there, it was myself and Too Short. Now, if you know my history, that meant a lot to me because Too Short was a lot, you know, a big thing for me in the early 90s as a youth in Houston. I talk about that right off the bat in the interview. And this is just a real honor. I want to say thank you to uh, Jerry Yoshizu from Scion, Maine. I hit her up today because I was like, man, I have audio of that. Basically, they didn't record this interview. Like, it, I would have just went up there and none of these. I recorded all three, by the way. But uh, I bootlegged them. It's true. It's, nothing's changed over here. But I had my little MP3 recorder thinger-dinger. And I was sitting with Killer Mike. I was like, yo, hit this, man. Make sure this is recording, you know. At one of the front tables. So I just put my little MP3 recorder there, close to a speaker, sort of, and did this interview with Too Short. So the sound quality is not perfect, but it's not terrible by any means. And it's a lot of real talk. You want to talk about real independence in hip hop? You want to talk about the early days in hip hop selling straight out the trunk? Main, hold up. You need to stay tuned for this. Some real talk with Too Short. My name is Matt Sanzala. You're tuned in to the Pusher Mania Podcast Network. So many more things to come, but this is just a little throwback, uh, flashback Friday if you will shout out jerry thank you so much all my folks at beyond marketing all y'all man why don't you come down and see me sometime come on y'all give it up a little bigger for that legend right there angelo man fishbone legend you're here on his territory right here his turf man this is incredible definitely appreciate uh all that knowledge drop and i really appreciate uh being given the opportunity to talk to two short tonight I came up, my name's Matt Sanzala, by the way. I came up in Texas, in Houston, Texas, and back in the late 80s, early 90s, I used to go to shows. It was a lot different than it is now. And I remember uh, one of the first, like, real rap shows I saw was Too Short and the Ghetto Boys together. And uh, that blew my mind and kind of changed my whole outlook on music as it was. I mean, like, I came up in punk rock and hip-hop and really... A lot of people probably didn't associate groups like the Ghetto Boys and Too Short and things like that with, with the punk rock scene. They always kind of looked at the more alternative, different type of stuff. But I remember that opened my eyes so much to see these guys who literally were selling tapes out of their cars, selling tapes hand-to-hand to the people and doing it pretty much like, you know, really just straight out in the streets. And those guys, I mean, inspired me beyond words. And uh, I'm really happy, and Killer Mike is in the house as well. Another big inspiration for me. He also, we talked earlier tonight about the inspiration that Too Short had on him and just hip-hop in general. And uh, without further ado, I'd love to bring up the man Short Dog, Too Short. Now, uh... Angelo talked a lot about uh, Fishbone's history and coming up. I think your story 
is one of the most compelling in hip hop because for me, coming up in Texas, we were. I don't want to. I don't know. Back in those days when you were coming up, we were definitely a secondary market. We were definitely not on the radar, and neither was the Bay. You had your first release in 1983. Yeah, we um, we used to sell music in the streets. Yeah. Like we like now you talk about social media, but you know when I was coming up, social media was actually being social <laughs> in the streets. You just go and you know meet people. Like people say, um, follow me on Twitter. And I'm like, follow me in real life, you know, yeah, exactly. like what's going on. So we we sold tapes in the streets, and it was it was not there was no outlets, no there was no like not one resource of could somebody help me with this music. You were on your own. So basically, we actually walked the music on foot right. to the people in the streets. That's how we got it out. Well, tell me about that process to an extent, because I see right now a lot of people talk about the, an independent kind of revolution right now. A lot of people have gone back to the streets and gone back to independence, and they have the Internet and all these other tools at their disposal. Back then, like you said, I mean, literally, I could say as a witness to that, like, you weren't in the magazines. You weren't on the radio at first. You were just straight in the streets. Like, how, how was that process, and can you compare it to today? Well, you know, I'm, I'm really, I really admire the social media format. That's like a platform that a new artist, when I think back on my career and what social media would have meant to it, the way it, the way it is now, it would have, you know, would have just saved me all those bus rides and all those walking up and down the streets on foot in the hot weather, cold weather. But I mean, really, everything just happened. Like, like I said, we had no outlets, we had no resources, so. We still had dreams and we still had aspirations, so we figured um, we're making the music and we're playing it for our friends, and everybody's giving us this great feedback. So here we are, punching a brick wall, trying to figure out. We feel like we're as good as the stuff that you hear on the radio, but how do we get it out there? So I think my um, my part in a in the evolution of Bay Area music was Bay Area Hip Hop was that um I had a rap partner. It's nineteen eighty one. Nobody's rapping in the Bay. There's no rappers, there's nothing, there's no such thing as hip hop. We're just mimicking what we hear that comes from New York and we hear it on the radio, we hear it at parties. And people like it. So my rap partner, he's like he says to me, Man, we can sell this stuff. My expertise was that I knew how to record set the level so it doesn't distort and peak. I knew how to, you know, I knew what stereo was and how to have everything just right. Where did you learn all that? I learned it from uh, just, my father was a, was a, like an audiophile who had, you know, some high-powered equipment, and when he would upgrade, I got the hand-me-downs, you know, so I, I, I go all the way back to 8-track recorders. That's that, If you know anything about music, that was a rare thing, period, an 8-track recorder. I knew, I had one of those, and I had I had, you know, I was I was a kid from the hood, man. We would trade cassette players, turntables, extra microphone, anything you had, you would either come up on it some kind of way or you trade for it. So basically, we had some stuff that would that could make a cassette sound decent. That was the first thing. So my my boy was like, I think we could sell it. I'm like, cool. You know, I was having fun just doing it as a hobby. I would get paid 50 bucks to DJ a party in the hood where, you know, the entrance fee was a dollar 
and every drink he wanted to buy cost a dollar. It was like hood parties. That was, you know, somebody might throw a party to pay rent. I was the hood DJ. So um, he said, we can sell it. And I was like, I don't care. Let's go sell it. Where do you want to sell it? And he said, let's just go right down the street to where the drug dealers are selling drugs. I was like, why do you want to go there? They're crazy people. They like the, the gangsters. He's like, well, they're the only people around here that got some money. So we walked over to a bunch of drug dealers. And we had one cassette, and we said we made a rap a rap song. Anybody want to buy it? And it was like a joke. They <laughs> were like, "Why the fuck would we buy your rap CD?" <laughs> so we said, "Anybody got a radio? Let's just play it." So they played it, and it was a guy he had a car with a very loud stereo, and it was a group of drug dealers, and they're like, you know, it's like do or die. <laughs> we just they they don't really know us. They you know they kind of know a little you know what's up, but they don't know us. And it plays for a little while, and one guy just pressed eject, and he's like, how much you want for it? Like, give us $5. He gave us the $5, and that just kind of started the thing. And everybody else was like, well, I want to buy one too. And we had no more. So we were like, give us a minute, and we'll be back. <laughs> Next day, we show up to the drug dealers, and we have a handful of cassettes. And we sell them five bucks a piece. So then we, we walk away and go, oh my God, this shit worked. What do we do now? Let's go to the next group of drug dealers. <laughs> so we get on the bus, walk whatever we got to do, and we really started a hustle where we just walk up to groups of drug dealers and sell them cassette tapes. So what happened was, um, the way it really got started was, we were we made friends with this guy who was like our age. He, he said, um, he was like, man, I want to. Which was be, like 14, 15 years we, old. We're talking like 1981. Right. So the guy is like, yeah, we're 10th graders. The guy is like, um, I want to be a rapper too. But now, mind you, he's a 15-year-old drug dealer. And he's like, I got some equipment. I know how to rap. And, you know, we are, okay, we'll come by your place. He takes us up into a dope dealing house with, like, a lot of older people who are, like, kind of scary kind of cats. And we hanging out in there making some music. And we come out. We're like, all right, man, we'll see you later. And this guy walks up on us, and he's just, he's just like a mean character. He's like... I don't like rap music. I don't want to hear it. I don't appreciate you guys being here. This shit is whack. And he, he's, in his rant, he says one thing. He says, I wouldn't listen to that shit unless my name was in it. <laughs> so we went home and we made a rap about him. We talked about him. You know, we talked about where he was from and all this stuff, what kind of car he had. And we gave it to him. This is really how my career got started. We gave him this cassette and he didn't say a word. Not thank you. He didn't even acknowledge it ever in life. Ever. A couple of weeks go by and we're just walking down the street. We got our little tape hustle. We're selling tapes. And another guy, he just like jumps out on the, I mean, scary like jumps out like and he's yelling at us he said do you know who i am he said his name was king d and we were walking down his neighborhood he's like you're on my turf right now and he's like if i don't get one of those tapes like you made the other guy you guys are in trouble day later he had his own customized tape every every we started being seeked out in the neighborhood by the bosses and they were like make me one too and that kind of started this little frenzy of everybody wanting a tape. If you wanted a customized tape or if you wanted the, the regular tapes. Everybody wanted a tape. So by the time I already mentioned City Hall Records, I went through a long process. Five years of just a nice little local career, doing shows, house parties, uh, rapped at a high school dance, wherever you could do it. And we finally um, 
finally got offered an opening spot on a big show. It was uh, 1985. It was UTFO, Roxanne, Roxanne. It was that was the big deal back then. Rap shows used to have a headlining group, maybe some opening acts, local acts. It would have the dance crew. It would have the DJ show. It was a whole. It was hip hop, and I got to be the little group that would just get 10 minutes, and my 10 minutes was tremendous and that was the beginning of everything so you know it was just a uh, like I, I i i admire and i'm jealous of social media and new artists and the platform they have now but it was fun to like to do social media on foot you know it was fun who was it that influenced you to start rapping though like you said there wasn't a lot of people in your area doing that well it was the era was uh definitely sugar hill records the king of rap was curtis blow it was um you know, it was uh, not a lot out there in hip-hop, but if you were a teenager, I was in high school at the time when rap came, came out, it first, it first went commercial, and just the, the light bulb that went on in my head, listening to a rap song one day and saying, I could do that, you know, that was, that was it right there, there was no, there was no significant influence, no one moment one person or one group it was just hip-hop in general and you talk to people who were introduced to hip-hop at different points in time in life not just at the beginning but people when they first heard it like you said when you it's just a thing it's like meeting you know a new good friend it could be any genre of music but hip-hop at in its early stage seemed to grab a lot of people off guard and and you just were infatuated with it i was one of those people when you say you had your 10 minutes on stage and you really grabbed the crowd, where, would you say at that point you were really representing the Bay? Were you really representing East Oakland when you first started? Well, I was an artist. This is 1985. I had been floating around, around the streets for about three or four years. Kind of popular. And never had anything official out that was pressed up or distributed any kind of way by a label or anything. And we got on this stage, it was probably, you know, somewhere between five, 7,000 people in the crowd. And I started rapping and every person in the crowd sang every word with me. And it's kind of like, you know, you know, that's, it happens, but it happens rarely. Where, you know, and it catches everybody off guard. It caught me off guard to, to actually rap a song that has never been on the radio, that has never been released by a record label, and the entire audience knows the words. So that... You know, that just shows testament to our social media skills oh. before the internet. Right. Well, I mean, back then, though, you're one of the architects of the, the West Coast in general, but especially the bass sound. And that's what I wonder, was that something that you feel like you were opening for groups like UTFO? I mean, you're, you sound different than UTFO. You know, was that something you think that really grabbed the people? Did you really have, when, in those days when you were first starting, do you feel like you had already had that sound developed? Oh, well, you want to know about what goes on in, in uh, success. <laughs> there was never a doubt, ever. Not now, not then, not at any point in between. There was never a doubt that we were making good music. There was never a doubt that if anybody could just hear this, they would love it. I mean, we had a dream, and our dream in high school was, let's just get on Greyhound, let's look at these addresses on all these rap records, let's get on the Greyhound and just go knock on the door and just say, listen to us. That was a dream. We, we, we really never chased the dream in, in that fashion, but I've heard of people who did that, and I actually, um, I feel like 
we did the right thing by not doing that. We did the right thing by learning how to sell it ourselves, actually putting the money in our pockets. I know, I know the stories of music, you know, musicians and recording artists and all the ups and downs and stuff. And you know, one of the best things that ever happened to me was from day one of making money. Somebody handing over the money, it actually went in my pocket. From the first time of somebody writing us a check, it actually went into my account. I never had the middleman saying, let me handle your money for you and uh, with everything will be taken care of. I never had somebody kind of like, you know, be the boss of me. I was always like fortunate enough to, I rap for the money. You hear about, about hip hop, it's, it's this thing that goes around going, oh, we do it for the love. I did it for the money from day one. Like it was a hustle. It was. I never, never had a day job. Never sold drugs. Never really did crimes. All I did was music from day one. So how did you develop that sound, though? I mean, your sound is the sound of the bay. Well, my sound is clearly. If you go back to the early Too Short days and you listen to, you know, the music, it's, it's nothing. But I call myself literally a clone of Dr. Funkenstein. Like, I'm just a, just a chip off of Parliament Funkadelic. There's nothing else that we idolize more than the 70s funk music, the, the bands on stage, you know, the Ohio Players cameo. It's a long list of groups of funk bands from the 70s, but in my eye, Parliament Funkadelic and everything they were about was always number one. And when I got in the studio, all I could think about was my music should sound like Parliament. And I mean the bass lines and the drum patterns and, and that's all, there was nothing else of the blueprint. So we sampled it as much as possible, we borrowed from it as much as possible, but we always like, you know, allegiance to the funk. And I look at um, recording artists now and I, I don't care what kind of music it is, I don't care if it's country or rock or whatever, I can always hear that funk in there. And I, and it, it it, it never fails you. Like the funk is not necessarily good for the pop world. It's not necessarily good for radio or MTV rotation. But if you make it, millions of people will love you. And I learned that. So I didn't necessarily feel like I needed that push from the mainstream. I definitely didn't want it. And most of all, I was confident that if you heard this, it was infectious. The first thing, the first time I ever got to really be in control of a, a really pressed up, manufactured for distribution two short project, I labeled it, I called it Dope Fiend Music. And the reason why I called it Dope Fiend Music is because if you listen to it, you would be a junkie, you would be addicted. And it was the truth. Where were some of the first places you went outside of the Bay? First cities I ever traveled to was Chicago and Houston, outside of the state of California. Outside of the Bay, we had Northern California on lockdown. Why do you think that was? Uh, Houston is something about Texas and too short. I don't, I can't explain it. Uh, Pimp C told me, he said, he said he never even had listened to the music. He knew it was rap, he was gonna buy it. And he saw me sitting in his Cadillac with all his jewelry on. He's like, that's what I wanna do for a living. I mean, you know, I just I just talked to guys like Scarface and, you know, it was just a connection between us. I, before we ever were famous, we were all friends. Right. There was a real connection between the Bay and Texas back then. And I remember you know, that. Distinctly, like, you know, literally, I saw you at least every couple months. One of my favorite in shows. Houston. One of my favorite shows I ever did ever was uh, was with the Ghetto Boys in, in Galveston, Texas. Galveston, yes. And I've I never there. been to Galveston. 
which was an experience, you know, like some <laughs> underwater shit in the south. Yeah, and you were in like an old, con- it wasn't even a club, it was a big old was, convention center. Type, yeah, so it was basically big open building. Shit, yeah. hotel was, I, don't, yeah. I don't know what it was, but all I know is it was one of those shows where you perform and you're not really performing for the audience, but you're performing with the audience. Like this, the entertainers became the audience, the audience became the show, and it was just this room of, of, uh, I don't know what you call it, man, but I, it was my first time. Actually, I knew the Ghetto Boys forever, but it was my first time, like, just doing a show with them where they just, it just, you know, because they had just hit the song Mind Playing Tricks on Me, and that was the biggest thing going right then. So, you know, I, a, lot, a lot of good memories, man. I, I can remember doing shows with a UGK, and they were the opening act, and they had Pocket Full of Stones, and, you know, it was coming out, but then when they started having a lot of underground hits, I did a show with them. I can remember doing a show with them somewhere down south, and after the show, they went on stage, and then I went on stage, and when it was all over, I'm like, if we ever do a show down south, I'm never going on before you guys ever again. You guys, like, they were my little brothers, but I'm like, not not in this region down here. You guys, you're going after me from now on. So we, we had to work it out. Scarface would be that same way with me. We'd get around Texas, and we'd get around, you know, different cities, and we'd be arguing about who has to go on last, because everybody wants to be the headliner, right? But we'd be arguing about who has to go on last because we would all do such a good show that the crowd would kind of be tired if you went on last. You'd like, you're like, man, I don't want that beat down crowd. You, you go on first. <laughs> so it was that type of thing back back then. Yeah, that uh, that place in Galveston didn't do any more rap shows after that. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we, we 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 trashed that spot. Yeah, that was crazy. literally. But that was always real interesting to me to see that independent world where you guys were UGK was off the radar you were off the radar you got you weren't you you got videos here and there on MTV raps but you weren't really in that mainstream but there was always you know, like you said you could go there and there'd be five to seven thousand people in a place oh yeah I mean some of um it's crazy now to think about it in, in hip-hop terms but some of my biggest records weren't the single <laughs> like the single would be on the radio, be a little video on Yo, Yo MTV Raps or BET or whatever, but that wouldn't be the song that everybody loved. It'd be some explicit song from the from the B side. So you know. Well, you brought up social media a few times, and I have to ask you, when did you realize that you had to get on social media? When when was it? When did that come to you? I, I assume with, with your career as long as it's been and doing what you've done for this many years, like when did you realize, man, too short has to get on Twitter, too short has to get on online? Well. I, it was a kind of a, a, a funny thing for me to, to figure out what social media was. It, it really started with MySpace, but it was probably like the early 2000s, and I had uh, discovered a group called The Pack, and one of their members, Lil B, the bass guy, he's, he's out there right now, but at the time, it was just high school kids, and I was many years platinum, been around the world, and these just some kids I discovered. I knew one of their fathers, and I, I wanted to help, help them get their music out. It was sounding good. So um, they taught me two things. They taught me um, what social media was, and they uh, they also turned me on to, um, to something I had no idea about. It was like free porno. I didn't even know there was such a thing as free porno. And they, they were they just they they had these computers all the time. They always anytime they said computer, they're like, I gotta get online. I'm like, what's the big deal about being online? And they're like, man, we'll put some new new pictures and then post some new songs. MySpace, MySpace. I'm like, what is MySpace? They're like, man, you know, they're trying to tell me. And I'm like, just throwing it out of my ear, like, who cares about what you're talking about? So I take these kids to one of my shows, and I let them open up the show. As far as I know, they have some high school kids who've been passing out CDs, 
music sounds good. Some people know about them in the neighborhood. But we're, I took them like maybe an hour away from where they live. And the people in the crowd, it's like about 3,000 people. And they're saying the words. <laughs> and I'm like, after the show, I'm like, how does everybody know the words of your song? It's like, MySpace. Like, what the fuck is MySpace? You know? And so they showed me what MySpace was. At the time, these were some kids, they probably had never left their neighborhood, but they had like, you know, 50,000 friends on MySpace. And in the end, they ended up posting songs that were getting like 20 million hits. And I'm like, you know, so I got up on it like that. But at the same time, you know, the internet is a... Is a, it's an amazing thing for a new artist right now. But is the internet enough? Because I feel like, you know, all the groundwork that you did is still relevant. Like, you can do the internet, you can be out there, but you still do have to touch the people. You, I don't care what the significance of social media is. You're not going to... That's not going to be the only uh, significant thing that gets you in the game. you still got to be a hustler. In this game, we, we realize that... Some of us are super talented, and we uh, we get so frustrated because nobody gets it. But you look at the next artist, and you're like, damn, this motherfucker can't sing. The music is out of key. The shit, it's, it don't even look, I don't like it. But it's selling because the person who's making it is a hustler. The person who's making it is affiliated with people who know how to get money and hustle. So it's like, it's not necessarily about always the exact talent or... A certain song is just about how you hustle it. So I feel like um part of the part of the part of social media that I'm attracted to is the potential of how you can hustle on it, what you can do with it. So I feel like even now, if an artist rises to, rises to the top, it's not necessarily because of a lucky song they made or you know a song just went big. I, I really feel like it's got a lot to do with how you're applying yourself daily on trying to get that out there. That's any business, any company, any product. You, you can't just expect for a good product to catch on. You gotta hustle that product. So that's what we do in, in music. And I feel like, um, you know, the artists who are making it now, you know, the Wiz Khalifa's, the ASAP Rockies, the Mac Millers, it's a bunch of them that came from the internet. But they didn't come overnight. They put out tons of free songs, tons of free albums. They call them mixtapes now. It used to be mixtapes, but now they're just like promo albums. They just give them away. And, you know, sometimes in, in certain cases, the internet is just, it's just advertising. The music is just advertising. Once you get it out there and you got a million fans, you can make money so many other ways other than necessarily the money, money you might get from a sale of a CD or anything, you know? So it's a... It's a wonderful world of hip-hop. I wish I had this right now when I was selling platinum after platinum after platinum after platinum. I wish that I had social media. We, I didn't even have a web, uh, I didn't even have an a, a email address back then. You know? Could a kid today do it without it? Do it the way you did it? Um, let's think. Could somebody hit the streets and blow up? I feel like um, it could happen. You know, the, the last artist that I really know in hip-hop that really is huge, just off of street word of mouth, the last one I, I'm just going to throw off, off the top of the head is Young Jeezy, who didn't, social media didn't make him, it wasn't there, and he went huge off the streets, him and like Gucci Man around that same time. But right now, I mean, I, I, that's kind of iffy, I don't know, because everybody's, everybody's on Twitter, everybody's on Instagram, everybody's on Facebook, it's like if you're not there, you're not really in it, so... It's hard to say if, I feel like if an artist really hit the pavement right now, 
it might be kind of dangerous. <laughs> you know? You might not want to walk into him. Is that lagging now with the internet? Um, I don't know, man. I just say uh, if I was if I was here right now and I knew what I knew back then, I wouldn't go. I wouldn't walk up to drug dealers. I would hit the internet. I wouldn't. You know, it's, it's, a new, it's a new day. It's, it's the information highway. Get it out there, man. I mean, it shit changed. No doubt. Well, we're going to wrap this up in just a minute, but I want to know what's next for you. What do you have coming up? Well, I got a few things in the works. Uh, mainly, uh, you know, I, I, I'm still trying to retire. They won't let me retire. So I, I just recorded an album with E40, which is uh, something we've been trying to do for the last 10 years. So me and E40, we're the people who set off Bay Area hip-hop scene. So we're going to do a duet album together. It's already recorded. Mixed and mastered. We started shooting videos last week. The album comes out election day, coincidentally. Not by uh, design, but it comes out. competition there. <laughs> it's, not, it's not by design. It was just picked November 6th and just happened to be that day. And also, um, I'm writing a book, which is uh, not what you think. I, I can tell you this much. It's not a too short autobiography, and it's not a book to teach you how to be a pimp or a player. It's, uh, it's really a book about the intelligent significance of how I got in the game and my relationship to Oakland, California, the political stuff that was going on in the Bay Area during my career, and just, you know, how we, how could an artist who, you know, by image, just generally is like disrespectful to women, but, you know, women love it. They love it. They come to the shows. They're in the front row. Women ask me daily to call them a bitch, as in, in a playful way. And... You know, I just want to dig into that subject of how did that become to be? How how can you say BS and it's not, you don't get mad, you laugh. You know, how did that happen? Well, you're not talking about them. That's what they say. <laughs> no, that did always trip me out. That did always trip me out, for real. And it trips me out, too. I'm kind of in awe of what Too Short became. I don't know. I just roll with the flow. It's like a surfer. You don't know what the next wave is. In fact, that was always a, a fun discussion to have with women back then. <laughs> Tell about Too Short. Well, definitely, man. We definitely appreciate you being here. All it's right. so great. You're a testament to this grind, man. A testament to just hip-hop in general. And what you've done, it's so great to see you still just really, really doing it. You're still on the top. And I want everybody to give it up real big for Too Short.